You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. I had so internalized this idea that I needed to earn my space. I had deluded myself into thinking that you work hard enough, you do enough, you make enough money, you become successful, all of that would happen. But guess what? It didn't. And that home, which is something I thought I had to earn, was actually something that I have a right to. Hello, welcome to Sakanjo on the Vox Media Podcast Network. Uh, my guest today is someone I've known for, for quite a while now, Jose Antonio Vargas, author of Dear America, Notes of an Undocumented Citizen. I originally knew Jose a bit as a journalist. We, we overlapped, or maybe we didn't quite overlap, but we nearly overlapped at the Washington Post, um, knew each other in those circles for a while. Then he did something really incredible and unexpected. He came out with this huge article saying that he was undocumented, that this sort of high-flying star journalist that everybody knew was actually not here with legal papers. When he came illegally, he didn't know that. That was something he found out later in life. But since then, he's done this incredibly courageous thing and has forced, with his organization Define American and his own work, he's forced people to grapple with the humanity of of others who are often spoken of only in categories and, and legal abstractions. He, he's forcing people to see his story and the stories of others as actual stories. And, and that's what we try to do in this conversation. We obviously get into the policy here and some of those deeper questions of rule and law, but this is also a story. It's about seeing what an experience that we tend to push off to the side that we tend to deny the humanity of it is really like and, and what it does to somebody, how it changes the world as they live in it. So I'm really excited about this conversation. I'm grateful for how open Jose was uh, as we talked. And, and here, without further ado, is Jose Antonio Vargas. Jose Antonio Vargas, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So we were just talking but before this started, and I didn't want to have you tell me this story until we began. See, you just made David Brooks cry. <laughs> yes, apparently, yes, I did. And it was surprising to everyone who witnessed it. It was at the Aspen ADS Festival a couple of months ago, and it was the first time I actually had talked about the book. And I asked him to do kind of this conversation with me and sent him an early copy of the book, not knowing how he would respond to it. And then we did this public event in front of like maybe maybe 250 um, 250 people. 
And in the middle of the conversation, you know, I, I'm forgetting even like what it was about. Like, I think I was talking about my mom. And then I just look at him, you know, he was to my left. And I'm seeing that he's like visibly crying. And I I was so stunned by it. I, you know, I kind of didn't know what, what to say. I think, I think I said something like, do you need tissues or something? I think it's, I think that's what I said. Yeah. So it, it was pretty intense. And, you know, I actually had not talked to him. I mean, he did acknowledge the fact that that was one of the rare times he publicly, I guess, got teary-eyed in public. And afterwards, I'll never forget all the people who had approached me and said they'd never seen him cry. So that was interesting. This is but a strange. I, I guess I'm just. <laughs> this is a strange question to ask you, but the book you write here and the story you're telling is so personal. When you talk about it, given that you've had to talk about it in this professional context, when you write about it, how emotionally connected are you to it? How much does it feel like you're talking about the character of Jose Antonio Vargas versus you're re-experiencing the things you're discussing? Uh, this is why I didn't want to write this book the way that I wrote it. I, I, um, I fought this book throughout the entire process. I really wanted to do a policy book. I wanted to write a manifesto, like kind of a migration manifesto. That's what I thought I wanted to do. And frankly, I wanted to do that because for me, I think it would have been easier. <laughs> and also, I think the journalist in me is always wanting to connect dots and contextualize and report and collect more information, you know, all of that. And so this book is kind of the first time, you know, when you're writing and all you have is you and the words, like there was no hiding from anything, right? No hiding from myself. And it was really painful, like going through that process and making sure that what was coming out on the page was, first of all, some of it was new to me. Like I wrote some things in this book I never told anybody. And that was scary, right? To like see that and to realize how I had, <laughs> it's ironic, you know, I spent all of my 20s and my teenage years hiding from this government. And then seven years ago, publicly kind of declaring that I'm here illegally and that, hey, you know, I'm here. I didn't realize how much I'd been hiding from myself all these years. Right. And kind of this, you know, there's a chapter, there's like a little chapter in the book that I called, you know, my government myself. Right. And in many ways, I think this book for me was um, kind of the explanation of the emotional, psychological toll of the separation between my government, which is not my government because, you know, I'm not even supposed to be here and myself. So that's all very emotional. And the mom stuff, the mom stuff, I, I don't know how to talk about my mom. It'd be so much easier, I think, if I was writing about somebody trying to talk about their mom. That would have been easier for me. But me, since I have to be honest, I, I don't know how to talk about her. Did you ever try to, to disattach in that way, to ask yourself, how would you write this if it was a story you were reporting as opposed to a story <laughs> you had lived? Actually, I think at one point I turned in like an early draft, like an early chapter, because, you know, I ended up going through several drafts, clearly. But at one point, my editor, Julia Schiff, said to me, do you realize you're actually you? Because I wrote it like I was writing like a New Yorker profile of someone else, 
right? I think ever since I was a kid, I was, you know, I, me, and my to me are the most dangerous words in the English language. And now that the past few years, especially, I've been using so much I, me, and my that I still feel like I had to earn how to use I, me, and my even when talking about my own mom, right? It, it would have been so much easier, I think, if, again, I was just reporting on this person, trying to talk about what this is. But since it is me, I had to kind of access that, right? And I'd never had therapy before. Actually, that was one of the questions my editor asked me when I turned in the first draft. She was like, have you ever seen a therapist? <laughs> and I said, no, I'd never seen a therapist. You know, uh, the book is therapy for me. Right? I know that that may sound really strange, but it ended up being that for me. I I know myself so much better after writing this, after going through this process. It, things are clearer to me. Like what? What the what the emotional psychological toll of the past 25 years have been, right? Um of being in this country and not being able to like kind of go anywhere else, <laughs> right? Like I've been in this country since I was 12 and I didn't realize how much that feeling of quote unquote being stuck, right? Like, I mean, of course it became very real in the book when I'm like talking about being locked up in a cell surrounded by, you know, little boys that were locked up with me. Um, like the physical space of feeling trapped and then as I was writing the book and, you know, even the structure of the book, right? Like Julia Shepard's my editor. I mean, the biggest thing that she and I really unlocked was to come up with the structure of lying, passing, and hiding, right? Those are like the three phases of the book. And in many ways, those are the three phases that every undocumented immigrant, and come to think of it, I think, you know, anyone in this country who's ever felt excluded from this country, right? Like that's what they go through. Um, that's what we go through. So having a language for that to me was really important, trying to understand what this process has been like for me. You know, because whenever we talk about, you know, whenever we talk about immigration, I mean, you know, look, you're like policy, policy, politics, politics, how partisan it is, how toxic it is, all of that. What's rarely talked about is, again, kind of this mental health, I would use the word crisis, that all of these different communities, may they be from Latin America or Asia or Africa or the Caribbean, are all living through and going through. And my hope in the book was to find language for that, that is beyond immigration reform or DACA or DREAM Act or, you know, kind of what the news, you know, often talks about and writes about. I want to say as a note here to, to focus on saying, I, I promise we're, we're going to go through the, the underlying story here, but I actually, as opposed to going just in chronological order of the book, I, I sort of want to follow us to follow the conversation through the parts of the story it takes us through. So we're going to go a bit out of order. You, you said something a minute ago that I want to pick up on about the feeling of being trapped. You and I overlapped at the Washington Post. I don't think for very long, <laughs> but, but for, but for a, a hot minute. I actually and, think you had my desk. I think you had my desk. Oh, I is left. that right? I think so. <laughs> yes. Well, I, I knew it had a, a charge of greatness when I sat there. Oh, psh, I don't know about that. Um, <laughs> you you tell a story there about being offered what sounded like a pretty remarkable job, actually, as a foreign correspondent focused on the way digital technologies were upending foreign policy and 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 other countries, and having to 
turn that job down because, I mean, you couldn't tell them why, but, but because you couldn't travel, because you might not be let back in if you did. And that's like the smallest of the traumas that you relate in the book. But it hit me a bit hard because I realized like the freedom to take the jobs I want to take to travel where I want to travel in the world is one that I take so for granted that I never even think about it. Um, and mm. I, I wanted to hear you talk a little bit more about that that story because it struck me as, I don't know, I think we hear a lot about the, not a lot, probably not enough, but I think people are used to the very big examples of the way that not being documented can narrow your life. Yeah. But I actually think some of the small ones can can offer a lot of insight. You know, that and also I remember that moment actually because, you know, David Hoffman, who was at the time the foreign editor, I was like in my mid-20s at the, at the Post at the time. I had just, I think I was just transitioning from being a two-year intern, right, to an actual full-time reporter. And, you know, when you're there, the goal was to get on the front page of the newspaper, right, to get noticed by editors like David Hoffman, who was the foreign editor. And so he took me out to lunch, and I didn't really know what he was going to talk to me about, but I knew that it was something because, you know, he doesn't just ask anybody to lunch. And when he said that, he said, hey, you know, I like what you're doing. And he said that I think it might be interesting if I went to Iraq to kind of cover the war, but from this perspective of how our digital technology and kind of this kind of culture of the internet and the culture of just video games even, how is that changing kind of how we fight wars? (laughs) And I'll never forget the moment he said that, my knees started shaking. And thankfully, the table was higher, so you couldn't see them, but of course I could feel them. And I excused myself and went to the bathroom, and I sat in the toilet, and I was like, how do I tell this man? Like, how do I explain that, no, I don't want to be a foreign correspondent going to Iraq, right? Like, and that's not something that any young reporter at the Washington Post would ever turn down. That's what you work towards. And... I really didn't have a plan. I just went back to the to the table because I was gone at that point by like 10 minutes and, you know, I didn't want him to think I was weird. Got back to the table and <laughs> then I came up with this stupid lie, you know, these stupid little lies. The lie was, oh, you know, I grew up overseas, <laughs> which is true. I'm from the Philippines. I grew up overseas. I don't want to see the world. And I remember like he gave me just this like, Oh, blessed David Hoffman. He just gave me this most confused but like endearing look, right? And then he, he and then he ended up saying something about how at the Washington Post, you know, like if you want to be taken seriously, like you might want to do a tour um, overseas. Um, you might want to be a political reporter. And then I jumped at it. I said, yeah, yeah, yeah that, that. I want to be a political reporter. And, you know, the moment that I thought of was Primary Colors, that movie by Mike Nichols. And when I was a kid, I don't know how many times I watched that movie, and I thought that, hey, you know, being a political reporter is kind of a cool thing to do, so I'm going to go do that. And then he just looked at me <laughs> with no judgment, but I, but he kind of gave me this look of like, um, that's not going to be so easy. But somehow uh, I managed to get my way into being a political reporter during the 2008 campaign. So those little kind of You know, it's interesting. I never really thought of it as trauma until I was writing about it. I just thought of it as like, you know, these are the choices I have to make, right? Like, what what would you have done if if you were in that situation? Would you have told him? I don't know. I mean, I feel like when you tell somebody, then you make them complicit. You make them a part of it. 
right? And but so you, that you, was always you told yeah, people. Ahead. Oh, yeah. I mean, that, that's but, something that's important about your story that you told, told people throughout people. throughout your life. But but not everybody, right? Like, let me give you an example. I've actually, I mean, I didn't write this in the book, but when I was at the Washington Post. I had been at the time developed like a relationship with Frank Rich over email because, you know, I was in high school when the entire New York Times website became available, right? And so I read every single movie review and theater review in the New York Times' website. I think that's how I learned how to write, was reading those reviews. And Frank Rich was many of those reviews. So I literally emailed him out of the blue because he wrote the linear notes to this woman, Audra McDonald, who I love, CD. And I emailed him in 2000, I think. And he responded out of the blue. And ever since then, I had had a relationship, kind of like this kind of mentorship relationship with him. And there was a reporter at the New York Times leaving the entertainment section, and they were looking to replace her. So Frank recommended me for the job. This was 2007, 2008. And I went, I talked to Sam Sifton, who was in charge of the culture department. I went up to New York at the Times, at, at their old headquarters, and I met a lot of people, you know, when they do that thing where they interview you for the whole day. I had done all of that. The la- one of the last steps was to talk to Jill Abramson and Bill Keller. That, that was like the last step of this process. Then <laughs> I went to one of the earliest people I told about my situation, Teresa Moore, who is, teaches journalism at University of San Francisco, who then said to me, Jose, you cannot keep moving forward until you tell Frank Rich. He said, I could not keep moving forward in this process if I don't tell Frank Rich. She said that I owed Frank Rich the same honesty that I told Peter Pearl, right? The editor at the Washington Post, who I told months after I was hired there. She was right, but guess what? I couldn't bring myself to tell Frank. I couldn't do it. So what I did, I contacted the recruiter at the Times and I said, you know what? I'm happy here. (laughs) I'm just going to stay at the post, right? And years later, I had to explain to Frank why I didn't pursue it. So those kind of things, right? I mean, you you make a judgment call. And frankly, I didn't want to tell Frank Rich because I didn't want to, you know, make Frank be a part of this mess, right? Right? So those are the kind of judgment calls that you have to make. And, you know, at that time, I was just making them in the best way that I could make them. I mean, there were no lawyers advising me. It was just me, right, talking to people. I was weighing how to talk about this question or if this would come up. So as we said, so I I guess maybe we didn't overlap at the Post. Maybe I came right after you did and took your desk. (laughs) (laughs) And you'd gone to the Huffington Post at that point. And But you had a reputation. You're someone I, I heard about there. Um, <laughs> and a slightly strange reputation. You, you'd been sort of like a, like a force, right? You'd come in and you had made a lot of waves and reported these digital things and people there didn't understand and been good at multimedia in a way others weren't, um, and been on the Pulitzer team around the Virginia Tech shootings. But there's also people talked to be you, and I couldn't quite figure it out. There was like an intensity with the way you were there and the way you met people and knew people and operated. And I could never quite figure out even what was being said. And then one of the things that I began to think about when you came out with your New York Times Magazine piece about being undocumented and and, and reading this book was 
how much of the way you operated in the newsrooms when you were coming up socially was also about creating networks of protection, hmm. um, you know, that you needed more than to just do good work. You needed people there to be on your side. You needed to be known. I mean, when I went to the Post, I had this great, I, I guess, compared to this freedom oh, yeah. to just do my own thing. Um, and one of the ways I operated there was I actually like sort of drew a circle around what I did and was like, people don't pass the circle, <laughs> yeah, 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 right? Yeah. You leave me alone to do my thing. And like, then like when I started Wonk Blog, you leave Wonk Blog alone to do Wonk Blog thing. Um, not to say I didn't have good relationships or, or mentors or any of that, but I actually really put a lot of effort into protecting my little space. And I was thinking reading the book, how that wasn't a luxury you had. And you can tell me if this sounds totally off to you. But uh, I was curious about you know, it. Well, you know, Ezra, I didn't really. I remember when the when the because you know originally my coming out essay was supposed to be in the Washington Post, right? I mean, I, I had offered it to the Washington Post to publish, and then they decided weeks after I worked on the piece with Carlos Lozada that they didn't want to publish it. And after that happened, of course, when the New York Times published the essay, I mean, you know how the media ecosystem is between like, you know, DC and New York. So they wrote about why the Washington Post killed the story. And, and can you just say, so this was a story where you didn't just say you were undocumented, but talked about how some people at the Post knew. I mean, do you, can you oh, just yeah. give a quick, quick overview of yeah, the story? Yeah, so- it was a very big deal. When I started thinking about, I have to say that I started thinking about how unsustainable my circumstances were during the 2008 campaign. Right, like I was, I was flying around the country with the Washington Post covering the 2008 campaign as an undocumented, you know, reporter, and there was only one person in the Washington Post who knew that I was doing that. That was Peter Pearl. You know, I had gotten hired at the Post as an intern in 2004. Got there in June. I thought I had June 2000. I literally flew to DC. I think three days after my college graduation. Got to DC. And, you know, this was like post 9-11 Bush era, the Patriot Act, where you needed ID to get anywhere and everywhere. And I thought I had the word, you know, illegal tattooed in my forehead. It was just too much. So I decided four months after getting there, about four or five months after getting there, that I got to go tell somebody. And I didn't know who that was, somebody. But I figured out that it was this guy who had been assigned to me as like a mentor, like as a professional mentor when I was an intern, Peter Pearl. His name is Peter Pearl. At that time, he was kind of senior personnel in charge, helping kind of with recruitment in the newspaper. When I met him, he was a magazine writer at the magazine of the newspaper. So I told him, and I totally did not expect him to respond the way he responded. The moment I told him, I expected him to say, Okay, that's it. We got to go tell Len Downey, you know, the editor of the paper. We got to go tell HR. Instead, Peter made a decision, like a split-second decision, and I don't know how he made that decision in his head, to protect me, right? To basically hide the fact that I was at the Washington Post illegally. So he was really the can, only can you person— say what he told you? Because it's a remarkable ah, sentence. It's a remarkable—yeah, it's a remarkable thing. Oh, man. He said, you make so much more sense now. <laughs> that was the first thing. And, you know, I can only imagine how I came across to people, right? This just really kind of, I was, I was always running. Like I was going somewhere, right? So he said, you make so much more sense now, right? 
And then he said, don't tell anybody else. This is now our shared problem. That is such a remarkable response. And the thing is, imagine that response. Imagine hearing that from my perspective, right? I'm paranoid. And then, by the way, and the way he said that, he said it with such calm. You know, I never had a dad. Um, You know, my dad left my mom when I was like three, and I probably saw him like four or five times in my life. It was probably the closest to like a fatherly (laughs) kind of conversation I would get with anybody, right? He like, he figured out what was wrong with me, and he said, don't worry about it, we'll figure it out. I did not make a single move at the Washington Post without talking to Peter Pearl, right? May it be, you know, I'm on a campaign plane. I remember there was one time when Ann Kornblut, who was the Clinton, she was assigned to the Clinton campaign. For some reason, she had to like take a leave. And I was assigned, for some reason, they assigned me to take over her spot. So I was on the Clinton plane for like, I think about two weeks as it went through Texas and Ohio and Wisconsin. And I can't tell you how stressful that was, just being around social, you know, Secret Service, because, you know, as a former first lady and, you know, she had a lot of security with her and that. And then I would just call Peter <laughs> or email Peter and he would just be like, hey, how's it going? Hope things are going well. Like the fact that he was willing to do what he did and the fact that he protected me, right? I remember the day of the Pulitzer, you know, because I ended up just winning a part of that prize because of Facebook, actually. And I think the moment I was told, I went to his office and I said, you know, like, how can this happen? Like, are, aren't the Pulitzer people going to know that the Social Security number is invalid? Like, are, right? Like those, and your Peter was like, what are you talking about? Jose, chill out. Congratulations. <laughs> right? But your grandmother, that same day oh, yeah. calls yep. in as your reaction, right? And, you know, because what had happened was it became pretty big news in the Philippines. So she was getting calls from the Philippine news people, right? So instead of congratulations, my grandmother's biggest thing was what's going to happen when they find out? So that was really the beginning of like, okay, I can't keep doing this. I can't keep doing this. I can't keep doing this. And throughout this entire process... When I was preparing to come out as undocumented and writing my story, I told Peter that I was going to do it. And then I told him that he doesn't have to be in it. I told him that I don't have to name him. Right? I told him that, you know, I didn't want to get him in trouble and that I was going to leave him out of the story. (laughs) And then he said to me, Jose, don't do that. I'm proud of what I did. Right? I'm part of the story. And you know, as I'm as I'm talking to you now, I'm thinking about how many other Peter Pearls are across this country, right? In many different fields, doing what he did for me and what he's done for me. Right? And yet when we talk about this issue, right, how many times do we actually hear that story of those people? Like, he was one of the people in my life, one of the key people in my life, who helped me pass, who in many ways, you know, hid me, right? Like, where are those people in this conversation? Where are they in this debate? We rarely hear about them. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. 
You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. I want to back the story up now a little bit because we've been talking about a part of it where you knew and you're bringing other people in yes. as co-conspirators. But I want to talk here about now backing out how you found out. Mm, yeah. Because you were at some point in your own story in Peter Pearl's position where you knew <laughs> you and you actually didn't know this information about you. No, I mean, it was... Uh... How did you find out that you were in America illegally? So I found out uh, four years after arriving here, right? So I had arrived here at age 12. And, you know, I have to say those 12 to like 16, those four years were confusing, exhilarating. You know, it was, it was exciting. It was really kind of, those were kind of the innocent years of my life, I suppose. So then when I went to the DMV as a 16-year-old to get a driver's permit. I brought, of course, kind of my ID for my, my Mountain View High School ID, right? Jose Antonio Vargas, my my school ID. And then I brought my this thing called a green card, which I didn't really know what it was, but my grandfather said that it's why I'm here is this piece of paper. And so I didn't ask for permission. I just went to the DMV. It was, it was an, I think, like after school, one after school, it was spring. And then I went to the booth. I got called into the booth. I'll never forget. I actually had my Walkman on. Remember Walkmans? I had a Walkman on, and I was listening to Alanis Morissette and Boys to Men, a tape of Alanis Morissette and Boys to Men. So I went to the booth and gave this woman my school ID. I thought my school ID was the most important thing. So I gave my school ID and then this green card thing. And the woman looked at the green card. She flipped it twice. And within a few seconds... She lowered her head in the booth and she said, this is fake. And then she said, don't come back here again, right? And my first instinct in my head, I didn't say it out loud. In my head, the first thing I thought of was, I'm not Mexican. Because <laughs> when I was growing up, you know, in those innocent years in which I didn't think this had anything to do with me, whenever the radio or the television or the newspaper or the Chronicle, San Francisco Chronicle or the Tennessee Mercury News, which is the papers that were around when I was growing up, whenever anybody said anything about illegal people or the wall, it was always about Mexican people. I didn't think it had anything to do with me. So I thought in my head, I'm not Mexican. 
And the second thing I thought of was she was lying, right? My grandfather worked the graveyard shift, so he was always, you know, home in the afternoon. So I got home and I told my grandfather what this woman had said. And then my grandfather said, you know, the first thing was, what are you doing showing that to people, the green card? And the second thing he said was, you're not supposed to be here. So that's how I found out. And, you know, this was in 97. So there was no Google. I thought I was the only person that had this experience and who was not, quote unquote, Mexican. Right. So that's how I found out. What did that knowledge do to your self-identity? <laughs> See, I didn't really fully make sense of that until I got into the end chapters of the book. Um I didn't realize that I had been kind of running away from all of that, right? That the moment I realized, the moment that statement, you're not supposed to be here, was uttered by my grandfather, who, by the way, you know, spent $4,500, right, trying to get me those fake papers, which is a lot of money for a guy who didn't make that much money as a security guard. I think I had been trying to run away from really this mess that they created. The first thing I thought of was to get rid of my thick Filipino accent, which is kind of like that, right? Like Filipinos have a very thick kind of accent. And the first thing I thought of was get rid of this accent, that I needed to sound as white as I could and I needed to sound as black as I could. Because I figured if I talk like Charlie Rose, right, and could pass as Dr. Dre, then no one is going to wonder where I'm from. That was the first plan. The second plan was, how do I show people that I'm here, but still say that I'm not here? <laughs> right? And that's how journalism happened, right? I, the only reason I ended up writing was that I wanted to see my name on a piece of paper. That was the only reason why I wrote. There are no writers in my family. Journalism is not something we talked about. Like, you know, there was no reason why... I wrote for the simple fact that I wanted my name to be on a piece of paper just so I could have some sort of proof of existence, right? And that's really all I did from like 16 to 30. All I did was write these stories. And, you know, when I was writing the book, you know, when I was even trying to justify that, I actually deluded myself into thinking that I was going to write stories that no one else was writing. How delusional is that? Like, it's not like my stories were like groundbreaking. I mean, they were just stories, right? But I convinced myself that if I wrote stories that no one else was writing, it would somehow justify all the lies that I had to tell and all the laws I had to break. You said something in that passage in the book that caught my eye, which was that something that you speak about in the book that uh, was unexpected for me was that you had anxiety about taking jobs from uh, yeah. legal Americans. And that one of the ways you manage that anxiety was that if you were writing stories no one else would write, then you weren't taking the job from someone else because you had created it a unique job. And Ezra, Ezra, I, Ezra how delusional is it, is it to say that? Isn't that delusional? I actually am not sure. Well, it's a different question of whether I, I think it is or not, I guess. Um because I don't think it is, actually. <laughs> I, I don't use the word delusional. What I think is remarkable is the way the language of anti-immigration, anti-undocumented immigration penetrates into the subconsciousness yes. of the undocumented immigrants themselves. 
I, I'm a big believer in this idea that, um, which I think is very well proven out, that people come here and they create jobs that wouldn't otherwise exist, that labor is complementary, not just substitution. And I think you're an example of that. I, I don't think that Define American would exist without Jose Antonio Vargas. But by the same token, I always think about it in that respect, right? I think about it as that kind of economic question. I haven't hmm. really thought about the way hearing that as a sin, right, as a, as a kind of crime you can commit against America would make somebody who feels that maybe they're committing this crime feel. Like, that, that is something I had never considered, which is a well, failure I, of empathy on my part. But, 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 but you know, it, it's interesting listening to you because even the delusional part for me was I had so internalized this idea that I needed to earn my space, right? And that I was going to go prove myself in whatever way I could or I, or, or I could figure out, which is why I think that gets into what you were saying a few minutes ago about, I'm, I can only imagine how I came across to people just because I was just so myopic, right? I was so driven in a way that's beyond the usual ambitious 20-year-old working in DC kind of thing. But it was because I thought that the only way to justify being here illegally was to work my ass off, right? And then it wasn't until I was locked up in that cell and I'm looking around, you know, the faces of these boys, right, who came to this country around the same age that I did. But, you know, I came on a plane, right? They walked. That was when I came up with a line in the book that was, to me, incredibly um, cathartic. Uh, the line is, home is not something I should have to earn, Right? I had deluded myself into thinking that you work hard enough, you do enough, you make enough money, you become successful, all of that would happen. But guess what? It didn't, right? And that home, which is something I thought I had to earn, was actually something that I have a right to. I want to hold on this idea for a minute. So I'm going to be very transparent about where I come from in this conversation because I'm about to take another perspective. So my father is an immigrant from Brazil. I grew up in Southern California in an immigrant-heavy community. My emotional commitment to the idea that immigration strengthens America is about as strong of a political and ideological commitment as I have. So just people, you know, that, <laughs> that, that's where I come that's from. That's where you're coming from, yes. That said, what I hear when I get criticized on this issue or what I hear when I listen to the people talking about this issue, when I hear Donald Trump say, if you don't have borders, you don't have a nation. It's a standard thing. I, I will often ask uh, politicians about open borders. It's one of the questions that I think elicits interesting, eh, elicits interesting answers. But Andrew Sullivan recently wrote about that um, and mistook it for a, like obvious open borders advocacy for me. But the reason I think some of this happens is that people hear a conversation like this, or they hear somebody coming from the perspective I am, and what they don't hear is a limiting principle. Hmm. If home isn't something you earn, if you just get it, if just being somewhere and being a person means that you should be able to exist there, well then, doesn't the moral logic of that lead to open borders? Doesn't that mean you don't want there to be a nation that has limits on who can come into it? And I'll be honest that this is a question that I don't have a great answer to. I think a lot of questions don't have good limiting principles. We just put them in somewhat arbitrarily, trying to balance competing uh, interests. But I'm curious, you know, when, when you say that line, home 
is something that you should have a right to. What, what then is the answer to someone who says, yeah, but if that's true, and all you need to do to have a right to America as your home is for somebody to get you over the border here, well, then we don't have borders and we don't have a country, then you're really an open borders um, supporter. And, and, and people, I think, then say, well, and I don't understand, I don't understand what happens to the country in the aftermath of that. First of all, I think we have to define our terms, right? This country has always been open borders. So long as the borders, may it be political or economic, benefited and benefits the country, right? I'm sitting here and I'm looking at my iPhone, right? Like the same iPhone that can be manufactured in China, delivered to Cupertino and end up in New York where I bought it, right? This iPhone can go to more places than I can as a human being. The second thing I want to bring up is this idea that this is why I did what I did seven years ago and I'm doing what I'm doing now is that we can have these conversations so we can define our terms, right? Of course, I believe that a country should have a right to define and limit who's here. That's the reason why I actually put my hand up and said, okay, I'm here, right? Now what do we do, right? The problem, though, is from the open borders, you know, from the people who say I'm against open borders or the law is the law, is they don't really want to engage in a conversation about how these systems are created and constructed as they are, right? And don't want to connect the dots between, for example, you know, I'm Filipino. We have, you know, there's like 2 million Filipinos in the state of California, right? There's about 4 million of us here in the country. Out of the 34 relatives that I have just in California, I am the only one who's undocumented. Everybody else in my family is either a U.S. citizen by birth or a U.S. citizen through naturalization. That's a very complicated existence, right? But guess what? That's the reality for most undocumented people. We live with U.S. citizens, right? We live with each other. So even that fact to me gets lost in this conversation. So before we kind of, and this is why in writing this book, I'm so glad that my editor forced me to really get deeper personally. Because again, what I wanted to do was have that conversation was like, okay, so how do we talk about, I don't know if you noticed that in the dedication of the book, like in the dedication of the book, I ended up dedicating the book, of course, to my mom. I think that's only appropriate. But to the world's migrant population, 258 million and counting. Like some people would say that we're going through this migrant crisis, right? The global migration crisis. I would venture to say that we're, what we're actually living through is like a natural progression of history, right? Like America and European countries have been able to go to these other countries, right, to build their economies, to find people to sell their products to, right? And yet, because of many different factors, including, by the way, you know, the environment, like climate change, the impact of climate change and migration patterns, we rarely even talk about that. Now people are moving. Where are they going to go? How do we welcome them, right? And whom do we consider to be citizens of said countries? That to me is a conversation that's much bigger than quote unquote open borders, right? And again, let me repeat myself. Absolutely, we should determine who's here. Absolutely, we should try to figure out a legal way to make people, I would argue, by the way, Ezra, that there's way more than 11 million people. If I just counted all the white undocumented people that greet me at Starbucks in the past seven years, it's already more than 11 million people, right? 
I don't think we know what this issue even really is because we don't want to When you say that, when you say white undocumented, do you you mean yeah. people just who don't have documentation? You mean people who came here from somewhere else but no, we don't know people, about No, people who usually – people would out themselves to me because, uh, you know, I've been traveling like a crazy madman for the past seven years. And usually – I don't know why Starbucks. Usually when I'm in line at Starbucks getting my iced coffee, I would – get a tap from a person and the person would be this, you know, this white looking person. And they would tell me that, Hey, I'm here undocumented, (laughs) right? Either from Ireland, from the UK, from Germany, from France. Right. But they just, you know, and usually when they talk to me about it, they feel really guilty. They feel really guilty that whenever this issue gets brought up, it's usually people with names like Jose Antonio Vargas, right. Um, Who gets kind of profiled, right. And they don't. So I think that's really interesting. At Define American, we have we have been really, really intentional in making sure that we include as many undocumented white and undocumented black and undocumented Asian people as we possibly can, just to really complicate the narrative and to be representative of what the issue is. I, I want to pull us back into this question for a minute, though, because I think you gave me an answer here that, while uh, has a lot of truth to it and is compelling to me, We've been in a kind of emotional wavelength in this conversation. And I think that yeah. there's often a tendency when we start talking about the policy or the the big picture questions for the country to flip back into this, well, an iPhone can get here. Oh, yeah. Right? And why are goods different than people? And one of the things that you have done is you have made yourself a face of this issue and forced yourself into dialogue with a lot of people. Mm. I mean, you tell stories from Fox News. I'd actually like to talk about some of them in a minute. But you've been going all the way from Fox News to the people talking to you in a Starbucks to the to the undocumented um, residents you're talking to, you know, who, who come to you. What I want to ask you is, what do you think it is about you that your presence here, what you represent here, that makes – people, I don't want to say necessarily like Donald Trump, but but of that coalition, uncomfortable. <laughs> what is it about immigration that scares people? What understanding have you developed of that? Because it's not, I think this whole thing where we're talking about native-born jobs and stuff, um, if it were just about that, we could solve this. But like, it's not. One, most of that data that, yeah. says that immigration is good for the economy. And two, we could do pretty straightforward tax and transfer and redistribute, right? If this were an economic question, we could solve it. We just could. We sanitize a lot of stuff in American politics by making it economic. And then we end up debating income levels and never dealing with the thing. There's something else here. What do you think it is? What do you think you being here elicits in people that makes them afraid or upset? I don't think it's a surprise that Donald Trump made himself a political force by questioning the citizenship of a sitting American president, right? And saying that, wait a second, is he really a U.S. citizen, right? I don't think it's an accident that Donald Trump made immigration the central campaign issue, right? Why? Because most people don't know what it is. Like that for me has been the most constant and the most always surprising part of this journey for me is just how many Americans, particularly white Americans, have very little understanding of immigration history. 
I mean, I'll never forget when I was, you know, one, one of the first events I did right after I came out as undocumented was at the University of Georgia in Athens, which apparently is a conservative school. I didn't know. And then towards the end of this thing that I was doing, I think I was giving like a little speech or something. Towards the end, there was a student who was part of the college Republicans who ended up kind of, you know, racist hand questioned me. And, you know, usually any person of color is, we're so used to being asked you know, questions like, where are you from? Where are you from, from, right? So I decided at that moment to kind of turn the question around. And I think he was asking me something around, why can't we do it the legal way? Kind of the question that I get asked a lot, which is like, why can't you just fix this thing? I said, fixing this thing means, you know, going into city hall, filling out a form and poof, I'm an American stealing your welfare, right? So I turned the question around and I said, hey, where are you from? He said, what do you mean? I'm American. I said, no, no, no. Like, where are you from? He's like, I'm white. And then I said to him, well, you know, white is not a country. Where are you from? And then he goes, I don't know. And I looked at him and I was like, how can you not know? How'd you get here? As far as I'm concerned, unless you're a Native American or an African American who was forced to come to this country to build the country, you have to answer three fundamental questions. Where did you come from? How did you get here? Who paid? Where did they come from? The Philippines. How did they get here? I was smuggled. Who paid? My grandfather, $4,500. If you can't answer those three questions throughout your own history, right? May it be when the Irish came here after the potato famine. May it be, you know, Eastern European Jews trying to escape, right? Um, The genocide of people, like whatever that is. Like that to me is, some people will say that's emotional context. No, I think that's historical context. When people like Bill O'Reilly, you you, you were mentioning Fox News, you know, Bill on air said to me at one point that I don't deserve to be here. And I was so taken aback by the question that I'm sure, I mean, I don't think I said anything. I said my eyebrows probably like did something, you know, and I couldn't say anything. And then when I got off the air, I started thinking, wait a second, like, what did Bill O'Reilly do to deserve to be here? I mean, I think these are fundamental questions as we, as we think about policy, right? Like, why do people come? I want to talk about that Bill O'Reilly thing for a second. Yeah. Because I read that, and it's funny, I went through the exact <laughs> progression you did. Because before I read what you wanted to say, I was like, wait, but deserve, like that word. Deserve. Something I've, I've come to believe is one of the true divides in, not just in politics, but in life, is deserve mindsets and luck mindsets. Huh. So if you listen to Warren Buffett talk about being Warren Buffett, he will go through this long thing, and he'll say – that he won this unbelievable lottery that almost nobody wins to be born where he was, in the country he was, at the time he was, with the set of talents he was. And, you know, he'll say that, you know, whatever I've done is this very tiny fraction of what I've achieved. So much more came from just winning this set of escalating lotteries of birth. (laughs) And there's this really, really profound difference, I think, between people who look at where they are in life and what they see is a lot of luck, what genetic inheritance you got, who your parents were, where you were born, you know, just it, opportunities, you know, that, that came or did not come in your life. And people who see just dessert, right? That they they somehow deserve to have what they have, right? They being born in America, some kind of birthright that, that you earned, or your parents earned on your behalf, or or whatever it might be. And it's really, really hard 
to jump over that chasm because it's such an important chasm. I mean, in some ways to all of us, right? If you really, you can really fall into an abyss of just, it's all luck and, and nothing we do matters, mm. right? You end up in a place that I ended up in in college sometimes of like, there's just like no free will mm. at all. But that feels to me like a big piece of this because, and it goes back to this question of what is a limiting principle that yes, it is. if you don't believe that being American means you deserve to be here, that somehow you earn, that somehow there's a moral force of being here, you say it's luck and that everybody should be able to be as lucky as you, then you all of a sudden end up in this abyss. So I think it's very important. It plays a really important psychological role, what Bill O'Reilly said, because if you're not going to frame it as deserve, the implications of that are really radical. The implications of luck what that means morally is really radical. Let's take that even further. Do we really want people comparing themselves to each other and saying, I deserve this more than you do because of that? Like if we were to actually round up a group of undocumented immigrants and put them next to native-born U.S. citizens and compare what they've done in this country and what they contribute to this country, do we really want to do that? Do you really want me to go up against somebody and say, okay, I've done all these things. What have you done? And then I get to stay or I get to leave and you get to stay? Is that what we want here? Which is why the whole language around earned citizenship, right? And mind you, as, you, as, as I was just telling you, I've had a very toxic, <laughs> uh, traumatic experience with this idea of earning something, which I internalize as to be true. And as I got older and older, realized that, wait a second, what are we really asking people? There is not a step in, in, in the immigration reform fight in D.C. in which earned citizenship is not part of the conversation. Like, what is that about? And then, and then one thing that, that to me is lacking here is I am not a product of luck. I will tell you that. What I am a product of, though, is kindness. Like, all of these small choices of kindness that led to me existing here and having a space here to feel like I can be here. Just a few days ago, I did an event at my high school, at Mountain View High School, because I, you know, I'm starting this crazy book tour. It's going to be all around the country. And I figured that the first people that should really hold a copy of this book are the people who have known me since I was a teenager. Right, You know, it was my high school uh, principal who was there, Pat Hyland, who's now the chair of the board of Divine American. Mrs. Denny, my choir teacher, was there. Peter Pearl showed up. My middle school <laughs> classmates were there. And, and it was important for me to say to all of them, right, that when I go around the country, when I go on Fox News, when I go on conservative talk radio, when I'm on Twitter, when I'm on social media and people are like, you should leave, you should go, somebody arrest him, whatever, whatever. I hold on to all of the kindness that all of those people have shown me before I became anything. <laughs> I carry that with me wherever I go. Like I am the product of that, right? And, you know, as we talk about this issue, I think that is a choice, that choice of kindness, that sign of welcome. That to me is a question now that every community in this country, in every state, in every municipality have to decide, right, for themselves, for their communities, how they're going to welcome people. I think that's the conversation. Eurovision is here. 
This year's contest gets underway this week in Malmö, Sweden, but this year's contest comes with a dose of controversy. I'll give you one guess as to what people are mad about. Yes, correct. It's that. Organizers of the Eurovision Song Contest say they are assessing whether Israel's entry breaks the rules on political neutrality. I think it's a shame. I think there's no way that that Israel should be able to participate in Pro Palestinian protesters are taking to the Swedish streets. More than a thousand Swedish artists, including Robin, have called for an Israel ban. Some European politicians are joining them. Charlie Harding from Switched On Pop joins us this week on Today Explained to help us figure out if Europe can sing its way out of this situation. There's something here about the way we treat individuals and groups and the way those things fire up different parts of our brains and personalities. I mean, it's something I was wondering reading your book about whether these people who showed you so much kindness um, all along the way, whether their, uh, their views of you and their approach to you and their relationship with you, how much that reflected at that moment, their big picture views about immigration questions and who should be here and what you should think about borders. No. And I don't mean that just about them. I mean it with everyone. Um, you know, I think you you hear all the time when you see these Trump country stories, you know, about these families that are voting for Trump, but they're incredibly kind to the undocumented family living down the block or you yeah. know, an African-American yeah, yeah, yeah. family that if somebody can break through that barrier between member of a group and then individual, undocumented immigrant versus Jose. It really changes us. Um, uh, it is something I really believe that most people in most contexts are kind to people they meet. Not everybody. I'm not, not everybody, saying nothing yes. terrible happens, but but most people. And you know, and even I mean, you see this. You, you tell a couple stories in the in the piece of people, you know, saying something snide to you or being an asshole on Twitter, and you know, and then the more you're able to sort of force an interaction, the more they begin to to back down and, and treat you as a human. And I feel very unsettled about this question, actually, because it can't be that the answer to our political problems is to force everybody to see everybody else as an individual. It won't work. It doesn't scale in that way. Um, <laughs> and on the other hand, it's like, I'm not even sure which one is true, right? Like to some degree, we need to make judgments about big groups and big categories. But there's something about kindness there that like, it's a weird incentive that if you can just get people to where they're seen as an individual, then they get treated in a, in a different category. There's something about the way our beliefs about people and our beliefs about groups don't match up. And maybe because, they can't. Because you can't, well, because you can't separate an individual from the system in which they're a part of, right? And and I actually think that's the tension that we're living through. We are living through kind of the national policies of immigration and how they're impacting local communities. But at the same time, while that's happening, figuring out how local communities, may it be churches, synagogues, places of worship, to schools, Right? Like, I was just, okay, this crazy thing happened a few months ago, which I really still can't believe. So, the school district that I attended when I was in middle school decided to name an elementary school after me, which is mind boggling. They contacted me about it last fall when they were considering it. And I actually thought it was a joke. And I was like, this is not going to happen. And lo and behold, it happened. 
And the principal of the school, of this school, came to this event that we had in Mountain View and, you know, to kind of meet people. And then a parent, I went to school with this woman, Joan, who was in speech and debate with me. And she's a parent now, and her child is going to be going to Jose Antonio Vargas Elementary next year. It opens next August. So Joan, in front of all of, you know, my friends and all of the people who love me, said, Jose, so how can this school protect all the undocumented families that may be going to the school? You know, I hadn't really considered it like that before. I mean, I knew that there may be some undocumented parents whose kids are U.S. citizens would be coming to the school. And I just started realizing that, well, like, we had to go figure that out. <laughs> like, we got to figure out how can this school serve as some sort of a model for not only welcoming immigrant families, some of whom may be undocumented, but for figuring out how they feel safe in the school, the idea of safety. And especially because I don't feel all that safe most of the time. Like, I get really nervous at airports. I do. And I don't feel safe, and yet the school is going to happen with my name on it. And now the parent of one of the students who's going to go to school is asking me, how can we make that school safe? So these questions that, you know, gets to the heart of communities and who belongs, Right. But they also get to the heart. I want to stay on this individual and group thing for a minute. And there's something I'm trying to grope towards here, and I'm not even exactly sure how to do it. But let's use, we, we were talking about how individuals treat individuals versus groups. But but let's talk about how the government does it. Mm, yes. Something you talk about with, I think, a lot of eloquence in the book is you've been for some years now, I don't quite want to say daring, but you have stood up and said in the most public ways possible, you said this in Congress, testifying before a Senate committee, that I am an undocumented immigrant. I am here. What are you going to do with me? And at the same time, the government is deporting tons of people. It has not deported you, and it could find you. And the government is treating you as an individual. Now, one could say maybe it's treating you as a famous individual, which is also true. But it's also treating you as an individual. It just decided that it doesn't want to deport Jose. <laughs> and like there is this question of like, what do the laws mean in that context? And I feel like you've been you've been forcing people to confront that. And I'm curious like what it feel like what you what did that has led you to conclude about what the laws even mean? <laughs> I'd be lying to you if I didn't tell you how how confusing that is to me, how the moment I did this seven years ago, right? And, you know, I'm a pretty thoughtful person. Like I kind of went through the process in terms of the scenarios of what could happen. I spoke to lawyers, right? I reported the hell out of it to try to figure out what could happen. And I did not anticipate that I would be here seven years later doing what I'm doing. I, I didn't know that that's what would happen. I didn't know that, you know, President Obama would deport, I think he was averaging like 400,000 immigrants a year, right? Yeah, er early in the administration. Early in the administration before DACA was, was, was introduced in 2012. And, you know, even while DACA was happening, families were still being ripped apart. And that was, you know, to me, kind of the, the contradiction within the Obama administration. I certainly am looking forward to how, you know, President Obama talks about that in his memoirs. But- I don't know why 
I have been an exception in that way, right? And, you know, I am trying to be, you know, my, my, uh, one of my dearest friends, my best friend, Jake Brewer, I think you all seen you, Jake, right, mm-hmm. Ezra? Yeah. He passed away um, almost three years ago, actually. He said that I have been practicing radical transparency, that I have just been being as transparent as I possibly can about my process, about why I'm here, about what I'm doing, right? And that's really all I can do. And with this book, you know, my publisher was making this point to me a few days ago that I hadn't really even thought about because it's ironic that I don't have a green card, but I guess the book gets a number in the Library of Congress. That was interesting. I just, I didn't think about that. And, you know, Lynn, the publisher was saying that she considers this book a historical record, right? Of someone who's currently undocumented saying to the government, here I am. And then the government lists the book in the Library of Congress. And I was like, what? So even that, like making sense of that, I try really hard to not focus on some of the surreal aspects of what's going on. I try to figure out how do I use everything I know to speak to something greater than myself? And even with this book, you know, I didn't, as I said to you, I didn't want to do a memoir because I was so afraid that I had read a lot of immigration books and I wasn't sure what I could add. But then when that structure of lying, passing, and hiding, like once we came up with that, then it became to me more accessible, right? All of a sudden, it wasn't just about being undocumented. It's about being a human being in the process that we all go through. So I don't know what the government plans to do with me, especially with this, with this administration. I don't know. What I do know is I'm going to try as much as I can, right, to keep asking all these questions that I myself don't have answers for. Right? The most provocative word in this cover is citizen. Like, what constitutes citizenship? I want to try to come from the other side on this, because I think that last question is an important one. Let me see if I can frame this in a way that is correct. So, I think the argument from somebody who has a very different set of beliefs than, than I have goes something like this. America can only take in, or at the very least, has only decided to take in so many people a year. And the people who come here undocumented and overstay a visa or however, you know, or, or, or get smuggled past the um, border or whatever it might be, they are, are trying to exploit a loophole that um, when people are here as an individual, when they're a resident here, that we treat them more as an individual, we become more um, sympathetic to their circumstance. It's just harder, it costs money, you know, it, it, it requires raids. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons why America's decided to have a, a very, very large undocumented population living here for the most part, you know, without constant uh, enforcement over them, even if their lives are, are, are made quite difficult. And that the people who are hurt by that are people who, they're, you know, as the line goes, waiting in line elsewhere. And because they're following the rules and following the law, they're not an individual to our system. They're just one more number in a line, one more application in a stack. Because they're following the rules, they don't have neighbors and churches advocating for them. And that the incentive then to not follow the rules, to break the law, to come in here so you can get into that semi-protected class of already here, of somebody we actually know, as opposed to, to, to waiting in line, that that's inhumane to those people. Yeah. 
And that the problem here, the, the problem with not enforcing laws in a more rigorous way is that you create this confusion about whether or not the law is even a good thing to follow. Um, and maybe we should change the law, but we clearly don't seem to want to do that either. And so we seem to have just ended up in this very, very strange equilibrium, which I think you are doing quite courageous work in, in exposing. But, you know, to somebody who might say that you're exposing it a little bit from the left, right, to, in a direction of more humaneness to the people who've already come, I think the, the argument from the right is that in exposing it, you're showing how inhumane it is to the people who haven't and, and how much we're creating a system maybe we don't want. What I would say to those people is the very people you're talking about is someone like my mom who's been waiting in line for decades to come here. Right. Legally, Right. And that's what I find really interesting when people even say, well, what about the people who are waiting in line? What about the people who want to become legal? Well, don't I want to become legal? Do you want to give me a line? Do you want to give me a process? Because, you know, I would follow it. If you were to say to me, okay, wait in line, wait 10, 12 years, okay. Pay taxes, I've done a lot of that, right? Whenever I write that check, by the way, I love America, I love America, I love public libraries, I love public schools, I love public roads, right? <laughs> like, right? So tell me what you want me to do. And by the way, one of the, to me, one of the underreported phenomenons of this administration, specifically the Trump administration, is blurring the lines between legal and illegal. Almost every set of policy coming out of the attorney general's office want to put a cap on legal migration. Wait a second, weren't we just talking about, quote unquote, people who are here illegally? So now you want to cut people who want to come legally. So what is it really about then? Especially when we know that factually you can't separate the undocumented people from the quote-unquote legal people because they live in the same house. I'm so glad you've made this point here because let's talk about what it's really about then. What is it really about? I, I think this is so important. When you founded your organization, you didn't call it Define Undocumented. You called it Define American. Or Define Immigrant. Or Define right? Immigrant, Yeah. You called it Define American. And I feel that if you ask, if you like got them to be honest, if you got Donald Trump and Jeff Sessions and Tom Cotton and, and the folks who, I mean, in this very interesting way said during the DACA debate, okay, we're willing to have an answer for dreamers if you let us cut legal immigration. This was never about undocumented immigrants. This was never about illegal immigration. It was always about how many immigrants are here in total. What they're saying is that they want to define American in some way where, I mean, I think even being reasonably generous where the percentage of it that is brown yep. is not going up as fast as people are fearing or believing that it will or hoping in some cases that it will. And that in some ways we end up having a lot of debates that are not really about that thing. But I, I, I sometimes appreciate the way Donald Trump just like uses a foghorn where other people use a dog whistle you know, with his comments about shithole countries and we should have more people from Scandinavia coming. I mean, this does seem to me to be about not just defining American, but shaping tomorrow's America. And there are a lot of people who want to shape it, who are worried that, who believe that too many immigrants will change what it means to be American in a way that they are not comfortable with. They're not always super explicit about what that change is, but they're pretty explicit at this point, I think that that's the change they're worried about. And, you know, I actually appreciate the foghorn, right? Maya Angelou said, when people show you who they are, believe them. I believe Donald Trump. I believe Jeff Sessions. We're being given an opportunity here 
of, of kind of a moral clarity. We dis- I disagree with it, of course. It's not my vision of America. But at least I know what it is. And now we have to figure out what are we trying to work towards? You know, like, w- like what does that look like? You know, in the book, I, I'm sure you noticed this, but one of the themes I really wanted to get to was how to talk about America kind of beyond black and white. I mean, of course, I talk a lot about white people in the book because I happen to have been mentored, you know, and been helped by a lot of white people. I talk a lot about black people in the book. Like, I can't even really describe what the impact of Toni Morrison and James Baldwin has had in me, right? But the context of black and white America as it exists in a country that is more Latino and more Asian, I mean, you've written about this, in the next 50 years, right, according to the Pew Research Center, 88% of the total U.S. population growth is going to come from 43 million immigrants, documented and undocumented, most of whom are Latinos and Asians. And yet, we talk about America, for the most part, like it's still just black and white, when it's far more complex. You know, like here in Los Angeles, like where I'm at right now, even the context about how do new immigrants from Latin America and Asia, like how do we internalize being anti-Black, right? Like, you know, whenever you hear new immigrants come to the country and and then they talk about kind of Black people and say something along the lines of, you know, how come immigrants come here and after 15 years, they've like built their lives and yet they're Black people still living, quote unquote, in the ghetto, right? And then you have to, you know, I know this for a fact, in my own family, I had to explain to my grandparents that, wait a second, like, you have to understand what systems have been in place to keep Black people where they're trying to get out of and have gotten out of, right? Like, how do we explain all these systems to new immigrants in this country? How do you explain kind of... In the Asian community, there's this thing about, you know, bananas, right? Like yellow on the outside, white on the inside. Some of my Asian friends, you know, say that their definition of being American is kind of the proximity to whiteness, which means trying to say that they're not that. All of these to me, this context again of this black and white America, how does this prism of more Latino, more Asian, more mixed race, more Middle Eastern, how does that play into it? That, to me, is kind of a lot of the subtext in this conversation, you know? There, there's something about the implicit things here that I think are, is really genuinely weird. Something that I always think about in this conversation is that, in general, people have a pretty good idea and a pretty good sense that it is good for a country's population to be growing. Yes, When people talk about Japan getting much older, when they talk about Europe getting older, they don't talk about that as a good thing. When people hear that Japan is now selling more adult diapers than infant diapers, people don't talk about that as a good thing. There there isn't confusion here. Nor is there some tremendous effort to increase native-born birth rates in America. You don't see Republicans um, uh, trying to create a vast suite of things that would make it easier to raise children in this country, childcare subsidies that would really work, universal pre-K. I mean, there are things you could do to incentivize or at the very least make it easier to have children, and those things aren't being done. And so here America is, this country that a very, very large portion of the world's most productive, hardworking, decent people want to come live in, a country that has a pretty good record assimilating immigrants, a country that is going to continue growing where some of our competitors will not because of immigrant populations. 
And instead of having a conversation about the pretty unique opportunity that gives us compared to some other countries, or even just having a conversation about how to make sure that is an opportunity, right? A conversation about assimilation or melting pots or something else. There's just this conversation about how to do something that I think in virtually everybody's intuition would actually be bad, which is to make sure America is actually a shrinking aging country. And it's why sometimes I wish we would just have the argument about whether or not America would be better off with more or less immigration. We have all these debates about border enforcement and undocumented populations, but I do wish that we were just honest enough to have a discussion about are we stronger with more immigrants or, or, or weaker? Because I'm not even sure people need to believe all these things that are, are, are new to believe this. The, the counter-argument in this that you get is that well, it can be bad for political stability, and we see that all over the world. Um, we see it in Sweden right now, where uh, roughly a far-right party with neo-Nazi influences, to put it lightly, is gaining quite a bit of power. And it's not because the economy is bad or because they don't have universal health care. It appears to be because of immigration. But if there's something in the way people choose or understand to react to immigration, like we should think about that. If we could agree that immigration is good, we could think about how to solve that problem. But instead, we just act as if that is this binding constraint. It's just we have this whole conversation that almost never talks about what it is actually talking about. And it's completely maddening. And, and a lot of it, I think, again, is because we haven't defined our terms. So assimilation, integration, like what does that really mean for people, right? Or, or when you say, for example, that, you know, demographic changes might bring about political instability, right? I would argue, by the way, that right now, like the shrinking white population is bringing about political instability in this country, right? The very fact that this fear, and I think it is fear, I think there's a fear among white people in this country, that this changing country that doesn't look what it used to look like is a different country. And I would actually argue that it is a different country, right? Like, and embracing what that difference is, right, to me is, is kind of a part of this future that we have to shape together, which brings me to a point that I really want to make, is like you, like I'm a, I'm, I'm a big numbers guy, right? So I love reading the reports from Pew. Whenever they came up with this, with a study saying that the white population, we're going to become a minority majority country by 2040. It's almost like there's like a stop clock or like there's a stopwatch somewhere. And then we're saying, oh, my God, in 40 years, white people, you're going to be the minority. You know what doesn't happen after we say that? The question of then what? Then what happens? Right? Like here we are in a country in which, you know, Colin Kaepernick's courage, which is, you know, talk about courage, right? To say that I am questioning, I am asking fundamental questions about what patriotism is or what it means to, to kneel, right? I am asking fundamental questions. I'll, I'll never forget when Alicia Garza, one of the founders of the Black Lives Matter movement, she said to me that the Black Lives Matter movement is actually also about citizenship, not citizenship like papers, she said, but citizenship as dignity, right? What are we building together? Like, what are we trying to buy into? I know this for a fact that there are many people out there, by the way, and I don't consider myself a left or a right person. I've never voted, although there's all this, you know, myths out there that undocumented people vote. I've never voted. What am I going to vote with? My Bank of America debit card? Like, what ID am I going to vote with? So I've never voted. So I, you know, I don't consider myself a Republican or a Democrat, right? But in this country, 
whenever issues, when it comes to people of color come about, people just assume that they're going to be progressive or Democrat without answering, well, why? (laughs) Right? Like, why is it that people of color feel that progress, (laughs) you know, has become a place that Democrats want to talk about and the Republicans don't? What are we really trying to build together here beyond these parties, beyond partisanship? I did a podcast a couple months back with uh, Jennifer Richardson, who's a Yale psychologist and has done amazing work on this. And and I do recommend if people are interested in the census and majority minority questions, they go check that out. But something I was thinking about a lot after that discussion, we can argue about the exact projections and, you know, what it means that mixed race people are treated as non-white under census definitions. But- even in the straightforward look at the the numbers, you know, whites become a plurality. They don't become a minority. Yep. But the level of fear around that um, and the level of anger and upset and backlash around just changes we've already seen in the culture and in politics, you know, the Donald Trump backlash to Barack Obama, I've always found it in a way telling that there's something behind it. And you see this in some polling that White people, and and I'm a white person, know that the way that white people in America have traditionally used our political and economic power has not always been that kind and generous. And the way in which many feel a very deep sense of fear and foreboding in a world where that power is no longer unquestioned, even if it's still quite substantial, I think is a bit of a tell on how badly we have managed our efforts to build a just and open society until now. That if there wasn't so much guilt lurking or or fear lurking in our understanding of what it is meant for us to be powerful, there'd be less lurking when we think of other groups becoming powerful. Now, I don't want to put this all on white people. You see, you know, if you tell African-Americans and Hispanics are rising in numbers, you you will see similar numbers. Groups react to status threats and power threats in in very similar ways. But I, I do think there's something there that is telling about how we have not been able to build a country where we doubt that if other groups become more powerful, they will use that power, I don't know if the word is cruelly or selfishly or just unthinkingly, but it says when we when we look out at others and see that, it says something about how we believe we have acted to. And to your point about having a discussion of what we want to build, it would be nice And I don't know, we always talk about like, we should have a national conversation. I don't know how these national conversations actually happen. Um, But it would be nice to have a conversation about building a society that worked less like that, recognizing the fears that exist on all sides and trying to get at the idea that, you know, maybe, maybe it doesn't have to be quite like that. Maybe the way we've done it before is not the only way to, to do it in the future. America is supposed to be the country where it isn't quite like that. But of course, it has been like that. And that distance between our aspirations for ourselves and, and who we've been in our best moments and who we also know we've been in our worst and, and often in our typical moments, it creates a lot of fear that our politics currently in this period of demographic transition feels to me like it's tumbling into. But I think it gets into this question of what are we willing to risk? How uncomfortable we're willing to get, right? Like we all hold some kind of privilege, whatever that may be. And I think the question becomes, what are you willing to risk whatever privilege you have? You know, 
I mean, I'm listening to you and I'm thinking about even with this book, like, you know, like the ghost of James Baldwin. I mean, I don't know what I would have done if I had discovered Baldwin as early as I did, but I was rereading The Fire Next Time a few months ago while I was preparing for writing the book. And, you know, towards the end of that book, when he talks about everything now we must assume is in our hands, we don't have any right to assume otherwise. And if we, this is what he wrote, if we, the relatively conscious white, and the relatively conscious black, if we do not falter in our duty now, we may be able, handful that we are, to end this racial nightmare and change the history of the world. If we do not dare everything, the fulfillment of that prophecy recreated in the Bible and songs by former slaves are upon us. God gave Noah the rainbow sign, no more water, the fire next time. I would argue, by the way, that many communities in this country have been on fire. Now the question is, together, right, what can that really spark if all those little fires happening within the Me Too movement, the immigrant rights movement, the Black Lives Matter movement, the fight for economic equality in this country, which cuts across all racial and ethnic groups, what happens if they actually really come together while at the same time talking to white people of all political backgrounds, of all economic backgrounds, and say, you have a part to play in this too? I worry sometimes that within people of color, kind of the circles, the question of, what space do white people hold is becoming a really fraught question. Even the language around allyship. I'm sure maybe, Ezra, you noticed in reading the book, I never called anybody an ally. I don't think that's enough of a term. Like, are you going to tell me that Peter Pearl was just an ally? Was Theresa Moore just an ally? They were more than that to me. Certainly now they're family to me. The language around this to me has to really um, evolve and has to get us to a place of not only greater understanding, but to a place that really insists on, you know, on unity. I don't think there's going to be a better place to end the podcast than that one. So oh. let me ask you the question we oh, yeah, yeah. always used to end yes. the, the conversation, which is, what are three books that you've read? And maybe The Fire Next Time is one of them. What are three books you've read that you would recommend to, to the audience listening to this conversation? Yes, I was going to recommend The Fire next time just because I think it's like a it's like an awakening that I always have to do for myself every few months. I would also recommend I just finished reading this fantastic novel by a young writer named um Tommy Orange. He wrote a novel called There There about Native Americans in Oakland, kind of near where I grew up, and it's a fantastic novel. You know, it's so rare now that we actually talk not only just about Native Americans, but like contemporary Native American life, right? And like, so it's a fantastic novel. And then there's another work of fiction by a woman named Elaine Castillo is her name. She wrote a book called America is Not in the Heart, which is a play on Carlos Bolosan, who's actually the epigraph in my book called America is in the Heart. And it's this fantastic also novel about kind of the Filipino experience, right? The Filipino immigrant experience in particular. So I just read that. I'm reading a lot of fiction these days just because I read so many, so much nonfiction when I was working on my book that I'm trying to like really kind of get different genres. So Tommy Orange and Elaine Castillo are like two just powerful voices that people should read. Jose Antonio Vargas, if people want to follow you and your work, where can they do that? Ah, 
please go to joseantoniovargas.com and defineamerican.com. And I'm Jose is writing on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Jose is writing. Jose is writing. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thank you to Jose for being here. Thank you to my producer, Jillian Weinberger, my engineer, Griffin Tanner. The Ezra Clancho is a Vox Media podcast production, and we'll be back next week.